Okay, it's uh, one o'clock. So uh, welcome everyone to Drisha. And this is the second class in the series on Shemitah in the Mishnah, Challenges and Opportunities with Rabbi uh, Avraham Wolfish. Today's class uh, will be a continuation of the previous class and will cover the subject of uh, benefiting uh, from the land and benef benefiting uh, fellow men. Again, we encourage everyone to turn on uh, your video if you are able to, uh, so we can uh, have a sense of uh, a class community. And uh, of course, uh, feel free to ask questions or uh, comment um, here uh, on Zoom by unmuting yourself or by writing it in the uh, chat box. If you're watching us uh, live on Facebook, we would love to hear from you as well. Um, and you can uh, comment on Facebook. Uh, with that, I'll turn this to you, Rabbi Wolfish. Okay, thank you. Okay, so here, let me put up the source sheet. Uh, on the screen. Okay, last, uh, last week we talked about the first two chapters. Uh, first two chapters that we saw, uh, somewhat surprisingly, focused not on what Shemitah is, but on how you prepare yourself for Shemitah. And it starts a, um, a series that seems to be chronological. Okay, so Shemitah is about sanctity of land, and the, uh, but it's also about sanctity of time. And like other kinds of sanctified time, Shemitah has a build up and in a way perhaps a build down or an extension backwards and forwards. So um, uh, these are some of the themes that we explored in the, in the first two chapters. Talked about how the land rests and how we prepare the land for its rest by not plowing and certain other kinds of uh, work leading up into Shemitah, okay? And how the land rests also by having its produce uh, continue to maintain a, uh, um, a special status uh, of uh, Shemitah produce uh, going on into the eighth year. That was the drasha of Rabbi Akiva in uh, the fourth Mishnah of the, of the first chapter, okay? And we also saw something about how the chapters are structured, how um, uh, the opening term, uh, the opening words of the first chapter, also the opening words of the second chapter, as well as the closing words of the last Mishnah in the first chapter, Ade Matai. Um, Okay, which gives you this uh, chronological focus of, of these chapters. Okay, now uh, today's uh, class is billed as dealing with chapters four and five, but so that we um, won't just completely skip over a chapter, if we wanna get a sense of where mission is going, we should uh, relate at least briefly to, uh, uh, to the chapter rather than skipping it over, we'll take a brief look at chapter three. Okay, so chapter three, uh, we're not going to look at the text of chapter three, uh, that we don't have time, because we do want to move on to chapters four and five. But, uh, um, but uh, in the uh, uh, first chart that I have here on the, uh, uh, on, on the screen, you can see that chapter three starts with the word me'e matai, which is flowing right along with the pattern 
that we started in the first two chapters. Except that the first two chapters talked about Adematai, until when? Because we're talking about, uh, in, in, in those chapters, we're talking about the, uh, uh, the Erev Shemitah year, the sixth year leading up to Shemitah. So we want to know until when can you do certain kinds of work? Moving into chapter three, when we say Me'ematai, now we're talking about the Shemitah year itself. Okay, and we're saying starting from which point during the Shemitah year is uh, are certain kinds of uh, uh, work in uh, out in the field uh, permitted. Okay, so we start with Me'ematai. The first two chapters talked about the plowing. That's on uh, the year before the Shemitah year. And chapter three opens with taking a manure uh, out to uh, uh, out to the places where manure is stored. Okay, manure was their fertilizer. Okay, so it was very important for them. Okay, they had animals. The animals were producing manure, and that was what they would use in order to fertilize the fields. Okay, and so the uh, uh, the Mishnah asks: During the Shemitah year, from when would you be permitted? to take the manure out in order to store it in these ashpatot. And the answer is, Misha yifsaku ovrei avera, or Rabbi Yudan Rabbi Yossi talk about a certain physical sign, okay? Rabbi Yudan Rabbi Yossi are looking for something, uh, uh, something more objective, less subjective, okay? In other words, you have to see when the matok what exactly the matok is, is, is a question. It might be the manure itself, or it might be moisture in the field. Okay, Rabbi Yossi says, Mishit Kasher, that's probably talking about the manure itself. Um, so that's something physical that's easy to determine. Okay, uh, but the, uh, uh, the majority opinion that's mentioned in the first Tana is Mishi Yifsiku, that's a phrase we'll be coming back to in a bit, okay? Uh, but let's just note for right now that this is something social rather than natural, okay? In other words, it's not some kind of natural event. It's describing how people behave, okay? And for the first time, we're beginning to see that how one conducts oneself during the Shemitah depends on uh, how people in reality, conduct themselves during the Shemitah. The people who interest us, interestingly, are the Ovrea Vera, okay? Which is another interesting point, because now we are encountering for the first time, and this will become a major theme as we go through the next few chapters of, of the Masachet, that uh, uh, Shemitah was often, you know, in the Shakespearean phrase, observed in the breach more than in the practice. Okay, uh, Shemitah, we should recall, I believe we mentioned this last week. If not, now is certainly a good time to mention it or to mention it a second time. Um, Shemitah is a somewhat utopian uh, set of commandments to this very day. What, 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 what do we do with Shemitah today in Eretz Israel? Well, for the most part, what we do is we sell Eretz Yisrael to a non-Jew so that we can circumvent 
most of the laws of Shemitah. Okay, and then the people who uh, you know, will call themselves uh, Machmirim, who are more meticulous about observing Shemitah, what that means in practice is they find other ways of circumventing the laws of Shemitah. Since the vast majority of them are not farmers, okay, so for them to observe Shemitah means that they'll buy their produce from, uh, uh, from something imported into Israel. Okay, so that's also basically circumventing the laws of Shemitah. It's only a small minority of people who actually observe the laws of Shemitah. That's true today, okay? Uh, and it even has official rabbinic recognition. Uh, but in the ancient world, it was also true that people, Shemitah was one of those mitzvot that was more often violated than almost any other mitzvah that you can find in the Torah, okay? Large swaths of the population just did not really observe the laws of Shemitah. So the fact that chapter three opens with Mishif Sukkot Ovrea Veira, okay? The Ovrea Veira are, what are, are what's going to determine from when you can bring the manure out uh, to, to the area in the field where, where it will be stored, okay? We'll talk about that, uh, uh, talk about that a little more, okay? But I uh, first I want to just uh, conclude the point with which I opened, which is chapter three is directly continuing chapters one and two, okay, with this opening term, me'ematai. But at the same time, it's moving us into something new because we have now moved from uh, the uh, approach to the Shemitah year in chapters one and two to the Shemitah year itself, how one observes Shemitah. But again, interestingly, we don't start off by talking about the do's and don'ts of Shemitah, okay? This tractate will barely touch on that, okay? And when it touches on it, it will be you know, almost incidentally, okay? So the, the things that the Torah spells out, don't plant, don't sow, don't plant, don't uh, prune your your vines, don't, don't gather in your produce, and so on. These things about working the land, okay, are not really elaborated on in the tractate, except here and there, almost incidentally, okay, the, the, the Mishnah will fill in, uh, will fill in a, a detail, okay? Perhaps because the Mishnah didn't have that much to add about it, or perhaps the Mishnah had other fish to fry that they were that they were more interested in. But the actual work that's being described here is not really work. It's not really don't work the land. Rather, we're talking about, okay, you are taking out the manure in order to preserve it, okay? Now you can hold on to that manure, okay, for a, for a, 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 a lengthy amount of time and use it for fertilizing whenever you get around to it. Now, what's the problem? The problem is during the Shemitah year, you should not be fertilizing the land because fertilizing the land is what you do when you're working the land, okay? When you're planting and you want the plants to grow properly or when the plants are growing already and you want them to flourish, you want them to grow better. These are things one does not do during the Shemitah year. 
But that's not, in fact, what this person is intending to do. He's taking the manure out for storage purposes. He is not taking it out for, uh, uh, for purposes of actually fertilizing the land. So why is it that at the beginning of the year, you're not allowed to do that? And the only time you can do that is, and we'll stick with the first opinion uh, for our purposes this evening, okay? From the time that the Ovrei Avera have finished. Why is that going to be the cutoff point? That's going to be the cutoff point because uh, when the person is taking the manure out to the field for storage, okay, or at least he's going to say, uh, the onlooker is going to say, why are you doing that? And he will say, oh, I'm doing that for the sake of storage. Okay, and you say, right, right, that's, you know, tell that to the judge, okay? Uh, you're not going to believe him. But that's if you do it at the beginning of the year. <clears throat> okay, so at what point will you be able to take it out for storage? At the point where people are no longer fertilizing their fields. The people who really are fertilizing their fields, they finished already. You know, the people who are shameless about it, okay? They're, they're not making any pretense of observing Shemitah. They're just going out and fertilizing their fields. When you see all of them have stopped, so then you say, okay, that means that agriculturally, there's no point in fertilizing the fields from this point. The other Tanaim give other criteria for when it will be that you'll say there's no point in fertilizing the fields, okay? But, but the first Tana gives a social uh, uh, criterion, okay? Look around, you see if people are still fertilizing their fields. If they are, then you don't take it out for storage. Why? It doesn't look good, okay? Now, this doesn't look good, again, is going to be a major theme that, that, that we're going to come back to, okay? So chapter three, uh, we see right away at the very beginning is both continuing the pattern of chapters one and two by presenting a timetable using the word ematai. But chapter three is also introducing new themes that we have not encountered in chapters one and two. Okay, chapter three plays off of chapter two also because it starts with, it starts with, uh, um, Motsim uh, Zvalim, and then continues in the second Mishnah by 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 talking about Ad Kamamizablim. How okay? Uh, what quantities of manure can you move from one place to another within your field during the Shemitah year? And the term Mizablim was already mentioned in chapter two. Okay, so chapter two already sort of foreshadowed this theme of Mizablim that's very central in chapter three. Okay, just very briefly now in this uh, 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 other uh, table that we have, okay, the structure of chapter three, chapter three divides into three sections and each section talks about something else that one does within the field, okay, that is actually not agricultural, but, could be employed for agricultural purposes. So we start off with Otsa'at Zebel. That's 
moving the manure in order to store it in the field. Then we have uh, taking rocks out of the field. Now he's taking the rocks in order to use them for building. He wants to, uh, you know, store them in a place with a kind of quarry and then use these rocks for building purposes. But again, when I remove rocks from the field, that could be to prepare the field for working the field, for planting there and for fostering growth and so on. Okay, and then the third section is also talking about moving rocks, in, uh, uh, building within the field, taking the rocks and actually using them for building. So interestingly, the first chapter that talks about what we may and may not do in the field during Shemitah is focusing on things that in their essence are permitted during Shemitah, okay? Storing manure, removing rocks in order to use them later on for building, or bringing in rocks in order to use them for building. Okay, all these things are permitted to do in the field during Shemitah, but all of them, okay, if they're done in the wrong way or at the wrong time, can appear to the onlooker as though I am violating Shemitah. And that's why the Mishnah uh, sets very clear parameters for all, you know, for, for all of these. Uh, types of work in the field uh, in Shemitah, it just has very clear parameters for how to do it. There are some very interesting interconnections among these three sections, which we don't have time to follow up. One of them has to do with the number three that keeps on coming up, okay? You can make three piles and each pile has three, three pailfuls and, and so on. You have like three times three times three, and that pattern repeats itself Okay, in, in the first two sections. And the last section even uh, says you can store the rocks in the field, okay, uh, the same way you stored the manure in the field. So it's an explicit equation. Okay, so the Mishnah, okay, again, this is a very well-structured chapter in which the different types of uh, work that I'm allowed to do in the field, as long as I do them in a way that makes it clear that I'm not doing it for agricultural purposes, okay? The Mishnah really weaves these three together and shows how they, how they in a sense, are interconnected. Now, there's one other point that comes up in Mishnah Gimel that's very central, okay? I'd like to spend a, a few minutes on that, okay? In chapter three, they talk about Hamidayer et Sadeh. Midayer comes from the word deer, which is a sheep pen. Okay, so you build a, uh, okay, now what happens is when you make a sheep pen in your field, what's going to happen is it's going to fill up with manure. Okay, so let's say a person, okay, let's say that a, uh, you know, a person wants to spread manure out in different parts of his field during Shemitah. So the Mishnah says, well, you can do that. How do you do it? Build a sheep pen, leave it up for several weeks, and then move the sheep pen, okay? And you move the sheep together with it, and then they are going to be spreading manure over that new section. And then you move it to a third section and so on. And that way you end up basically spreading the manure in the field, but you do it in such a way that 
you have not violated anything in Shemitah, but the Mishnah says you can do that uh, if you're doing it in a certain size field. Okay, and here I'm reading, okay, in the uh, section here, Marita Ayin in the Mishnah. Okay, so the uh, so the Mishnah uh, reads as follows: Hamadayer tzadehu mishayer mimenu mikzat mipnei marita ayin. You have to leave over a part of the field that you did not do this with. Okay, you didn't make a pen in that area, so it didn't become filled up with manure mipnei marita ayin. Because if I do it throughout the whole field, then it's apparent that what I have done is effectively I have fertilized the field, even though I'm pretending to be doing something else. But if I leave over a portion of it, then that makes it clear that this is my way of, of, of uh, you know, of, of, of keeping the animals end up uh, properly uh, during the year and perhaps storing the manure for further, you know, for, for use further on, uh, uh, further on during, uh, down the line. Okay, now this term marita ayin is an interesting term because it's actually very rare in the Mishnah. It comes up in several places in the Gemara, the Talmud Bavli, uh, but in the Mishnah, it's very rare. And I've listed the other places that it appears. Uh, uh, one of them is the, the Masechet that's immediately uh, adjacent to Masechet Shvi'id, immediately before Masechet Shvi'id, Masechet Kilayim, okay? But interestingly, regarding Kilayim, it doesn't appear in the context of the field, but in the context of clothing. Masechet Kilayim is mostly devoted to uh, not mixing species, mostly of uh, within agricultural settings. Towards the end, it also talks about uh, cross-breeding animals, okay? And in the very last chapter, it talks about shatnez, which is also a form of kilayim, okay? And the Mishnah in that connection says, hashirayim v'achalach en bahem mishum kilayim. We're talking here about certain kinds of material that are not included in shatnez, uh, materials such as silk, okay? Silk does not have kilayim. But it's forbidden to mix these kinds of fabrics because of maritaim. Because the person looking says, oh, he's producing a garment from two different kinds of fabrics. Okay. A second instance is in Masechet Shabbat. Again, not related to Shabbat. Okay. In, in contemporary Shabbat, there are lots of halachot that relate to Marita Ayin, okay? But in the Mishnah, the only halacha related to Marita Ayin is actually nothing to do with Shabbat whatsoever. It has to do with Brit Milah, which comes up in Masechet Shabbat incidentally in the 19th chapter, okay? And, and, and it says that uh, uh, when you do perform a Brit Milah, so you have to remove most of the skin from the appropriate area. Okay, and if only a minority of the skin is left, so then the chatchila you should remove it, but but the avad if it if it's left, then it doesn't disqualify the brit milah. But says the Mishnah, im hayav bal basar mitakno mipnei marita ayin. 
Okay, if if the baby is very fleshy, so then you should remove it because uh, it looks as though he hasn't really done a brit milah. Okay, in other words, in point of fact, he removed whatever needed to be removed, but the appearance of the organ is as though he had not done a, a proper brit milah, so it should be removed for appearance's sake. Okay. Third, in the, the, the other two instances of Marit Ayin in the Mishnah are both in Masechet Bechorot, and both of them are referring to, uh, they're both part of a section in chapter seven of Masechet Bechorot that talk about blemishes that disqualify a Kohen. Okay, so, so one of them is if the eyelashes of a Kohen fall off, so then that's not technically considered to be a blemish. He is a perfectly valid Kohen, but he shouldn't serve mipnei marit ha'ayin. Interesting wordplay there, okay? In other words, eyelashes and how it looks, marit ha'ayin, okay? And then similarly, uh, if he is missing teeth, so then, uh, then that's not considered to be a blemish, but he shouldn't serve in the Mikdash, Now it's interesting here, I want you to, to, to note that all four instances, except for Shvi'it, refer to Marita'ayin in one type of a circumstance that's very different from the way that Allah normally conceives of Marita'ayin today. Normally, how does Allah conceive of Marita'ayin? Marita'ayin, would be, for example, when they first started with non-dairy creamers. So the halacha was, you, you, you could use the non-dairy creamer at a fleshic meal, okay, as, but only on condition that you, that you bring out the, the carton. Okay, so everyone can see that, that this is not milk. Because since it appears to be milk, that would be a problem marita ein. Okay, or, Okay, if uh, you're traveling on the road and, and uh, you stop off and you need to go to the bathroom and the only place where there's a bathroom is a non-kosher diner, okay, so then you shouldn't enter the non-kosher diner to go to the bathroom because the onlooker might think that you're going in there in order to eat. That's the way we normally use Marita Ein. Now, in four out of the five cases in the Mishnah, where we talk about Marita Ayin, that in fact is not how it's being used. Okay, it's being used for, okay, it's being used for kil Ayin, okay, for shatnes, the clothing that I wear, for fixing a Brit Milah, so that it not only is done, but is seen to have been done, okay, and for blemishes of a Kohen. In all those cases, what we're talking about is a mitzvah that involves how something appears. Okay, clothing is how I appear. If my clothing looks like kill I am, that's a big problem because people are looking at my clothing. Okay, if okay, the organ looks as though it's uncircumcised, that's a problem. Okay, because that's part of the person's appearance. Okay certain uh, flaws in the Kohen's appearance, 
okay, look like a blemish, even if they aren't. So in all the cases, uh, all those four cases, the Mishnah uses Marita Ayin for laws that in their essence have to do with how a person appears. A person's physical state, his body and his clothing. And that's where the Mishnah talks about Marita Ayin. The one exception to that is here in Masechet Shvit. Okay? Masechet Shvit uses Marita Ayin the way it's used in most of the rest of the Mishnah. In most of the rest of the Mishnah, okay, uh, uh, excuse me, but most of, uh, 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 in, in later sources, I should say, not in the Mishnah. Okay, in the, the rest of the Mishnah, it's always used in terms of halachot that are inherently involved with appearance. With regard to Masechet Shvi'it, the Mishnah uses Marita Ayin. In a sense, it's more like entering the diner, the non-kosher diner, in order to use the bathroom. Okay? Don't put up your sheep pen you know, all, all around the field because of Marita Ayin. Okay? Now, um, that can indicate two things. First of all, I think it indicates that Marita Ayin has special importance for Masechet Shvi'it. And secondly, I think what it indicates is that what we're really interested in Masechet Shvi'it is not what the person is doing, but what the field is doing. When you fertilize a field thoroughly, so then, Okay, people look at the field and it looks like it has been worked. Okay, in other words, the, the Marita Ayin is also talking about how something looks. For the land to rest on uh, during the Shemitah year means not only that the land is given an opportunity to rest, but that it appears to be resting. People look at the land and see that it's resting. Okay, and, and so... The fact that Marita Ayin is used in this unusual way in Masechet Shvi'it says, I think, something very significant that how the Mishnah conceives of the resting of the land during the Shemitah year. The land resting is not just a, a physical reality, it's also a social reality. When the land appears to be worked, then the land is not really resting and then you're not really fulfilling the laws of Shemitah. So I think we're not just talking about suspicion. What we're talking about is, how does the Mishnah conceive of the land resting? For the land to rest, it has to also be seen to be resting, and it has to not appear to uh, be, uh, be being worked. Okay, and now we move into chapters four and five. Okay, we spent a little more time on chapter three than I had intended, but the themes that we talked about in chapter three, as we'll see, are very central in chapters four and five. So it's not, not really off the topic, okay? Let's take a look, okay? So we'll, we'll have a brief run-through of some of the Mishnayot in chapters four and five. And then we'll look at the structure of chapters four and five and discuss some of the ideas. So chapter four now has a new, a new way of opening, okay? We're no longer with the Ematai opening. 
We say Barishona, that's also chronological, but now it's historical chronology. Okay, at an earlier point in the history of Tarasha Balpeh, okay, you, you have the translation here on the left. So anyone who needs the translation, please follow on your own and I'll, I'll save time by not uh, uh, translating everything. Here and there I'll translate. Uh, translate some words, but 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 not uh, not uh, uh, not the whole thing. Okay, Barishana Yomrim Laketa Dam Eitzim Bavanim Basavim Bitok Shalom. Now we can readily see that we're continuing a theme from Chapter Three. <clears throat> chapter Three talked about bringing fertilizer out into the field and removing rocks from a field, and now we're talking about removing other things, okay? Now, why are we removing them again? This is something that could look like you're working the field, but doesn't have to be. Maybe I'm gathering the wood because I, I need firewood or I need wood for building. I'm gathering the stones as in chapter three because I want to use them for building. I'm gathering the weeds, again, I might have something to do with the weeds. Maybe I want to use them as animal fodder, or maybe I want to use them for kindling or whatever other purpose I might have. Okay, so originally a person could remove all of these things from his own field. The same way as he would certainly be allowed to do it from his neighbor's field, because I have no interest in working my neighbor's field. So even in my own field, if I'm taking it to use it for some other purpose, that's permissible. Et agas agas. How would it be permissible if I'm removing just the larger ones, the larger uh, pieces of wood, the larger stones, the larger weeds? Because since I'm leaving the smaller ones, it's clear that I'm not doing this in order to work the land. Because to work the land, I need the land to be rid of all of these, including the small ones. If I'm leaving the small ones, clearly I'm doing it for some other purpose. So I can do it even from my own field. Misharabu Ovreavera. Now, Misharabu Ovreavera. Here's where chapter four links up most clearly with chapter three. Chapter three opened with. Okay, we'll uh, move down to the chart here and see that. Misha Rabu in, uh, oh no, that's, uh, 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 oh, I, I didn't put that in. Okay. Um, okay, but that, that's something we, we should be noting, right? That Ovrei Avera is repeated from chap from the opening of chapter three. Okay, this time not when Ovrei Avera finish, so I'm no longer suspect. But now, since they have multiplied, there are many Ovrei Avera, so Hitkinu. Okay, so it was instituted. That each one can gather from his neighbor's field, okay, but not from his own field, okay. 
because then there's no suspicion. Okay, so we're continuing with this theme of Marita Ain. Okay, we're continuing with the theme of Ovrea Vera, we're continuing with the theme of Marita Ain. And we're introducing a new element that the Mishnah is going to pick up on in the next couple of statements. Shalobitova. Okay, now what does it mean, Bitova and Shalobitova? Shalobitova means um, means um, either without getting some kind of compensation or or acknowledgement from the owner. In other words, it's not that I uh, come in, I I take it away, and then I come to him and I say, you know, I cleared away uh, all your rubble. And he said, oh, thank you so much. I'm so happy. No, you shouldn't be getting that recognition. Or very likely, Shalobatova means without uh, making an explicit uh, agreement. But I can go into his field and clear and take his rocks and wood and weeds for whatever purpose I need. And he can come into my field, but not that we uh, coordinate. I send him a, a WhatsApp and say, hey, how about if I take your weeds and you take mine? No, that's okay. So you're allowed to do it in his field, but shalobitova, without having actually coordinated it. That's the other possible, possible reading. That's the first Mishnah. And we can readily see how that's continuing uh, themes that we had in chapter three. Okay, the next Mishnah talks about Okay, so now what happens if uh, something has been done in the field that maybe shouldn't have been done during the Shemitah year does that, um, does that disqualify it for agricultural work during the following year? Because what might happen is a person might be preparing his field during the Shemitah year for use in the eighth year. Okay, so the Mishnah says, well, it depends what he did. If it's been dethorned, that will not disqualify it for the eighth year. That's not a serious enough work of the field during the seventh year to disqualify it. But if nitaiva or nidaira, now what does nidaira mean? Okay, nidaira means it was fertilized. Okay, and nitaiva, it was it literally was improved. What exactly does that mean? It might mean plowing. Okay, that's the way the translator has it here. Okay, now notice the word nitaiva is a word play on shalobitova in the previous Mishnah. So the same way you should not be doing work in the other guy's fields, bitova, you should also, okay, if you do tova, nitaiva, during the seventh year, that will disqual disqualify the field for planting during the uh, uh, during the uh, uh, during the eighth year, okay. Let's skip down. Okay, there's a machloket beit shama in beit that we'll skip over to another machloket beit shama in beit 
אין אוכלין פירות שביעית וטובה. אוקיי, okay, and now we're starting again a new theme, which will not be very much developed in these chapters, but it will be the main subject of discussion in next week's, in next week's class, okay, which is devoted to chapters six through nine. Okay, we're talking about not working the field, but benefiting from the produce. And Beit Shammai says, okay, if you are benefiting from your neighbor's, uh, from your neighbor's produce, it should not be bitova. Okay, in other words, I'm going in there not because my neighbor is doing me a favor. I'm going in there because he is supposed to be opening up his field and letting everyone come in and enjoy the produce. So it would be improper for me before going into his field to send him a WhatsApp, say to him, listen, would it be okay if tomorrow I come into your field to take the produce? Wrong, you shouldn't be doing that. It's, it's yours as much as it's his, okay? For you to even ask him permission would be a violation of the whole spirit of what Shemitah is all about. And Beit Hillel says, you know what? It's open to you, but you can still be menschlich about it. Okay, in other words, the question is, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of foot, uh, you know, tiptoeing around the issue of um, uh, at what point does being menschlich you know, and being polite turn into a violation of the idea that he doesn't really own this field during the Shemitah year. The Beit Shammai says, okay, you can't square the circle. If you're going to be a nice guy and ask him for permission, okay, so then, then you're basically treating it as though it's his field and he's doing you a favor by letting you in. In order to make it clear that you're there by right and not, uh, and, and not because he's doing you a favor. So you, have, you must do it shalom betova. And Beitila says, you know what? Uh, if he tells me I can't go in, he's violating Shemitah, okay? But if I coordinate with him and, and, and ask him and, and say thank you after coming in, I'm not violating Shemitah. I'm, I'm exercising my right, but I'm doing it in a nice way. Okay, so okay, so there, there's this question here between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, and notice once again the terms tova and shalom tova. These are key terms running through these two mishnayot. Okay, so uh, and, and they're playing different roles. Some of them are focusing on what may be done with the land. Okay, and some of them are focusing on what may be done with the produce. Some of them are focusing on working the land per se, and some of them are focusing on the social interactions that are taking place during Shemitah, okay? And this, I think, is already introducing us to, to, to an interesting question that, again, will be picked up as we continue through these chapters, and that is that the resting of the land during Shemitah is not something that uh, applies to the individual per se, it applies to the society as a whole.
And that, again, gives us a perspective on why Marit Ha'ayin is so central and so crucial during Shemitah, because we want the society to be resting the land, not just the individual. And for the society to be resting the land, it has to be clear to each one that the other guy is observing the Shemitah. And now in our chapter, we're also talking about for the society to be resting the land, okay? So that doesn't mean that, you know, you have to refrain from things absolutely. There are certain things you can do with the land, but I'll do it to his field and he'll do it to my field, okay? And for the society to be observing Shemitah, you also have to have the kind of social interaction that enables each individual to benefit from his neighbor's field in the way that you're supposed to during the Shemitah, okay? But then there's also a downside to the social observance of Shemitah, and that is, we'll go back to the Ovrei Avera. The Ovrei Avera are not observing the Shemitah. So they impose certain stringencies on the people who are observing the Shemitah. Things they would normally be able to do they have to either refrain from or do them differently in order to make it clear to the rest of the society that they are not numbered among the Ovrei Avera. Because the Ovrei Avera did what they did yesterday or will start tomorrow, okay? And I'm doing it now and the Ovrei Avera are not active. So that makes it clear that I am not numbered among the Ovrei Avera. And then this section of, of chapter four concludes Okay, concludes with another aspect of the social observance of Shemitah. Okay. okay, let's say I want to rent a field during Shemitah, and when I come to rent it, I see that the field was plowed already. So if the field was plowed already, that means that somebody during the Shemitah year plowed the field. So can I rent that field? I'm, I'm not planning to work it. I'm not planning to plant anything. I'm renting it for whatever, you know, for whatever purpose, okay? But, okay, but the field has been plowed already. So if it's from a non-Jew, so he's entitled to plow the field during Shemitah. He's not bound by the laws of Shemitah. But if it's a Jew, then he is an over avera. The Mishnah doesn't use the term, but it's very clear that the Mishnah is alluding to that. I am renting a field from someone who violated Shemitah. That should not be done. Okay, and you can verbally encourage the Nochri to work during the Shemitah. I pass by, I see him plowing his field, and I say, great, I see you're doing a great job of plowing right now. Okay, that's fine. That's being a good neighbor. And you can be a good neighbor with a Gentile, okay? Which is another interesting message here, okay? Even though presumably we would prefer for there not to be Gentiles in Eretz Israel, but once they're there, they're part of our society and we interact civilly with them, okay? Avalo Yidei Yisrael. But if you see a Jew working his field during Shemitah, you shouldn't even encourage him verbally. So I should not only not rent a field from him, if I see him doing the work, I shouldn't encourage him. 
And this is very interesting. But I can give him a nice greeting and say, hi, how are you doing today? I can't say, okay, oh, I hope you have a good productive day's labor because it's forbidden work. But I can say to him, uh, nice weather out today, right? How are you feeling? That's fine. That's Shalim Bishlamah. Why? So the Mishnah, again, is walking a tightrope between, on the one hand, maintaining very clear standards. Okay? I do not encourage non-Jews to violate Shemitah. I don't act in a way that makes someone else think that I am violating Shemitah. But on the other hand, I don't break off contact, okay? I don't like set myself apart and pretend that they and I belong to different societies. And that's called Darkei Shalom. Okay, so the mission I think is walking a very interesting tightrope here, okay? In terms of how different members of the society interact in order to observe Shemitah on, on that level. Okay, the next section talks about cutting fruit trees during Shemitah, okay? We won't go through this in, in, in detail, but the idea is that since Shemitah produce is designed, it, it has a certain sanctity, it's called Kedushat Shvi'it, and it's designed uh, to, to serve as consumption for you and the society and even for the beasts of the field. So you should not cut down fruit trees from a certain point from which point the, the Mishnah will go on uh, and, and talk about uh, in, in Mishnah Zayin, from when can you eat the fruit? Because you shouldn't eat the fruit before it's fully edible. That's part of its sanctity. And from that time on, it says, from what time can I not cut down the fruit trees during, during the Shemitah year? Okay, so uh, there's been a kind of shift of focus, okay, in, uh, in this chapter, okay, it, it opens with thinning out olive trees, which you're allowed to do, okay, because I'm chopping down trees. I'm doing it early enough so it's not a problem. And I'm doing it just to thin it out and let the other ones grow properly, but Again, I have to do it in such a way as not uh, as to as to indicate that I'm not doing it in such a way as to foster better growth of the tree that I'm chopping down, and so I have to chop it down, uh, or, or not to make it appear as though I'm leaving the land free to be worked. Okay, that, that's that's the that's the correct problem here. Okay, and therefore. Okay, I should leave the roots, according to Beit Shammai. And Beit Hillel says, no, no, no. You can even uproot it. Okay, but, okay, even Beit Shammai prohibits it only mitok shalom, but not mitok shalchabero, which links this up with the very first Mishnah. So it's a different topic, but it has, it has a certain similarity. Okay, um, okay, that's chapter four. Okay, let's look at chapter five. Chapter five opens with Shemitah status of multi-year produce. And this is again a Marit Ayin problem because there are certain types of produce that have to be left in the ground for more than one year. 
Okay, so those, those types of produce, what am I allowed to do with them during the Shemitah year, okay? Uh, let's say I want to uh, store them in the ground, okay? I'm not planting them. They're, they're partly grown already, and I'm not planting them, but I do want to store them in the ground, okay? So again, this is something that might be misinterpreted. So the Mishnah talks about that, or a plant that, um, okay, that, let's say, uh, blooms, blossoms, becomes edible after two or three years, such as this loof, black calla lily, whatever that is, I'm not, not really sure, okay, my botany is a bit, a uh, bit weak, okay, um, but th this loof, okay, uh, if, uh, if it went through a Shemitah year, it's not like normal Shemitah produce. Because normal Shemitah produce is annual produce, something that grows during the year. Something it takes two or three years to develop, okay, has a different status. And then chapter five comes back to the theme that opened chapter four, providing support for Shemitah violators. And let's look at how this section ends. The last mission of chapter five. Okay. Ein machzikin yidei ovrei You cannot assist ovrei shalom. The things that are permitted are because of darchei shalom. Umachzikin yidei nochrim bashviit avalo yidei Yisrael. Shalim bishloma mipnei darchei shalom. This is a word-for-word -word quote of the Mishnah that we saw back in chapter four. But at the end of chapter five, okay, in the last half of chapter five, it's, it's presented in a much more elaborate fashion. Let's take a look. There are certain types of agricultural tools that a craftsman is not allowed to sell during Shemitah. Now, if somebody comes up to you during Shemitah and he wants to buy a plow and all of its appurtenances, so I say to him, what do you need a plow for? Okay, you're not supposed to be using that this year. Okay, come, come back to me next year when you can use it. Right? I shouldn't sell it to him because it's abundantly clear that the only purpose he would have for it is forbidden. Aval, and this is the uh, impressive part of this Mishnah and the surprising part. Aval mocheru magal yadu magal katsir va'agala v'chol keleha. Zeha klal. Kol shemlachtom yuchedet la'avera asur li'isur l'heter Mutar, anything that can be used only for transgressing is prohibited. Anything that could be used for something permissible, you're allowed to sell. Now, does that mean if I think he's really using it for something permissible? Mishnah doesn't say that. As long as he could use it for something permissible, I'm allowed to give him the benefit of the doubt and sell it to him. And the Mishnah continues, continues with this. 
There are also limitations on how much produce you're allowed to gather from the field during Shemitah. You're not supposed to harvest. So you can only gather Now, how much does a person, if you go out to land that belongs to everybody, it's Hefker, you're not going to come there with a the truck and load up the whole truck. Okay, you're going to come and fill up a basket or two baskets, and that's it. And you'll use it for your domestic consumption over the next week or two weeks. That's the that's the amount of oil jugs and wine jugs that you can sell. If, if a customer comes and wants to buy, I produce wine jugs or oil jugs. Customer comes and wants to buy them. So I figure out, well, if he were going for half care, how many jugs would he fill up with the oil or the wine? That's the number of jugs I can, I can sell him, okay? Because more than that, again, it would be clear he's using it for the purpose of transgression, okay? In Mishnachet, Beit Shammai Omrim, again, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, notice how they're playing a major role in this Masachet. Lo korlo Don't sell him a, a plowing cow during, uh, during the Shemitah year. There's a cow whose designated purpose is wearing a big sign, I am a cow designed for plowing. Everybody knows that's what one does with this cow. Shai says, don't sell it. Because he doesn't say, because I think he's going to slaughter it. I say, yeah, okay. It has a big sign to be used for plowing, but if the owner decides that they're short of meat and they want to slaughter it for meat, they'll do that. What are the chances that will really happen? Probably not great. In other words, I know that it's like 85% certain that he is buying this cow for purposes of plowing. Beit Hillel permits it. Okay, I can sell him produce even during the planting season. Okay, in other words, why is he buying the produce? Probably to take the seeds and plant them. That's the likeliest thing he's doing. Doesn't matter because he might be using it for eating. I can sell him a measuring a utensil, even though I know he has a granary, and that's probably what he wants it for, to store things in the granary, okay? So he wants to measure them out, okay? I can change money for him, give him small cash, small bills, let's say, in our, in our day, even though I know that there are workers who are working for him in his field. But I can assume that's not what he wants this money for. He wants it to give out Hanukkah guilt, not, not, for, the, not for the workers in, uh, uh, in the field. Okay. Again, what are the When is it prohibited? If he says outright that that's what he's doing, then it's prohibited. Okay. So again, what have we seen in, the, in these two chapters? What we've seen is, okay. Here I, I, I listed uh, 
some of the terms and themes that come up in these chapters that, 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 that give these chapters its quality. We have the terms chavero and chaverta, his or her fellow. We had Jews and non-Jews. We have the term chaver, an associate, and that's someone who we know is meticulous about observing malacha. Am ha'aretz, who's much more lax. And we have chashudim. We didn't see that in the Mishnah, but that's another term that comes up in these chapters. People who are suspect. We had ovrea vera that came up okay, at the beginning of chapter four and the end of chapter five. We had different professions, okay? We had people manufacturing different things. We had different kinds of social interactions, such as betova and shalom betova, such as lishol b'shalom, such as lechazek yadayim, okay? So what we really see happening in these chapters is how the Mishnah tries to, excuse me, <clears throat> tries to structure a Shemitah observing, uh, a Shemitah observing society. Okay, the, how, how, how the Mishnah tries to create uh, a society in which not only do I observe Shemitah in my private realm, but I become part of a society that's observing Shemitah. And what of course makes this all the more complicated is the full awareness in the Mishnah of the fact that many members of the society are not observing Shemitah. Some of them legitimately because they're non-Jews. So how do I interact with them during the Shemitah? There I can be very liberal. But then there are the Jews who I also either know are not observing Shemitah or suspect that they're not observing Shemitah. And here the Mishnah Okay, walks a much finer line, a much thinner line. Okay, trying on the one hand to maintain friendly, cordial relationships within the society. And on the other hand, making it very clear that A, we are not participating in someone else's Shemitah violation. And we are also not acting in such a way as to arouse suspicion that we ourselves are not observing the Shemitah. Okay, so in order to have a society, okay, that, that, that is observing the, the Shemitah, okay, the, these are the kinds of rules and structures that the Mishnah tries to create. Thank you all for participating. Okay, Erev uh, Tov, and for those who are still celebrating Hanukkah, so Hanukkah Sameach. Thank you so much. Uh, let me just uh, put it so everybody can see me. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Rabbi uh, Wolfish. Uh, this was a very interesting uh, second session. I'm really looking forward to uh, next time. And thank you also to everyone who joined us today uh, here on Zoom, of course, on uh, Facebook and also on Drisha Live. Uh, we'll be live again tomorrow, uh, Tuesday at 8 p.m. with a class on uh, Covenantal uh, Commandment, the sabbatical year in the Bible with Rabbi Silver. So hope to see you there as well. And there's always uh, all the information available on our website at www.dreshad.org slash classes. Uh, you can also watch uh, recordings of the classes as well as watch the classes live uh, on www.dreshad.org slash live. Uh, thank you again for this opportunity to learn with you again, Rabbi Wolfish. 
And uh, once again, we hope to see everyone soon at one of our uh, upcoming classes here at Risha.